Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's podcast is sponsored by my new favorite animated TV show, Tuttle Twins, the first cartoon series to teach kids principles of freedom, economics, and liberty, and to be funny in the process. Nowadays, hidden political agendas are constantly forced on your kids in entertainment and in schools. Tuttle Twins is a hilarious cartoon series that teaches kids about the principles of freedom without being overly preachy. It's educational and hilarious, and there are lots of jokes for adults too. The best part? You can watch Tuttle Twins entirely for free. Just go to TuttleTwins.tv, that is TuttleTwins, T-U-T-T-L-E-T-W-I-N-S dot TV, and over there you can watch all of the episodes for free. One more time, that's TuttleTwins.tv. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt you're destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a Canadian author. She is a writer who has recently written a book called The Mind Under Siege, Mechanisms of War Propaganda. And this is Alexandra Kitty. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Most welcome. So I've done a brief intro right there, Alexandra, but for people who are not familiar with you, please introduce yourself to the audience. I'm a former journalist who actually went into journalism to uh, conduct experiments, uh, why journalism was failing people, uh, how to uh, make it better and stronger. So I conducted literally hundreds of empirical uh experiments as a journalist, then went to write books starting in 2005, uh, such as Don't Believe It, How Lies Become News, Outfox, Rupert Murdoch's War on Journalism. And we are talking, uh, I'm still going strong in writing books on, based on what I have discovered, working as a journalist, going in saying, okay, what's the structure? What's the scaffolding? Uh, why do uh, hoaxes make the news? Why do we feel the way we do do we get upset when we hear the news or we get scared? And how do we do uh, journalism when we're not upsetting people and violating their emotional rights? Awesome. There's so much there to get into. But before we dive into that, how did you get into the world of journalism? Can you tell me a little bit about your journalistic career before you started writing these books? Well, I wasn't going to be a journalist. I didn't even think that was a career. I was uh, way back in the 90s. I was a psychology student and I was studying experimental psychology. And then the war in the former Yugoslavia came out and I could see that it was very, very skewed against the Serbs. It was bigoted. It was horrible. And I discovered way before we had, you know, databases through the Internet that there were a whole bunch of PR firms that were uh, hired. It was not not like unlike uh, 
the Babies and in Incubators uh, hoax that was uh, perpetrated by Hilla Knowlton. So I said, well, how does this get through? What happens? So I said, well, you know, I have all this knowledge as a psychology uh, student. Why don't I use this and go and switch? So in the last semester of uh, my studies, I had written a letter to 60 Minutes and uh, telling them this. And they said, well, would you like to do some research? And I said, sure. And I thought, well, if I can do that, maybe I should go into journalism, go, but not going in, let's say, undercover, but going in as an experimenter. How, do, uh, how does this process going where you have bad information or a bad narrative to polluting the information stream? So that's how I decided. So then I got my master's in journalism and then I became a journalist and I, that was my job. That was my career. So I worked as a journalist. So, you know, I had to pay my bills as a journalist. So I was completely immersed because I was honestly a journalist. And then when I was uh, got enough information, I said, okay, let me analyze what I have. How did I pitch things? How did I, what was the best way to interview people? What was the most sensitive way to, get this information that was different than what the standard was. And uh, was this all in Canada or elsewhere? Well, I worked from Canada, but I worked for uh, different publications in the U.S. I was a Canadian correspondent for a magazine called Press Time, which was a trade magazine for people in the newspaper business. So I was writing about newspapers for a journalistic audience. So my experience was, you know, throughout North America and, I found out a lot of things. Uh, a lot of my theories were wrong and a lot of mine were right. And I, I learned from that and I said, okay, how would you make this better? What did you learn? What would you do better? And then came my books. So the more I analyzed, the more I found, you know, there were very simple solutions to regain trust, to have a more pluralistic and diverse uh, product. It was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Now, we're living in a time, and maybe it's always been this way, but certainly in the last few years, a lot of people are having issues with what they call mainstream media or MSM or the corporate press. What do you think, in your opinion, are some of the things that they're doing wrong? And do you think that it's different now to how it used to be in the past? I, It's not too much different is more people are aware of it when you you know it's just like regular when you talk to somebody and somebody says something hurtful to one group or one person and they keep doing that more and more people start realizing this isn't you know you first you think it's just you maybe you did something wrong but when you find other people who are in the same boat you go no 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 this is what happened with journalism was very simple it was a one-way form of communications so they didn't get feedback from people. No one could really tell. We all thought what we were thinking. Well, this isn't fair. This is not. You don't recognize yourself or your group from the media coverage. Who is this? Well, you don't. When you start comparing notes and when you had social media come out where people could talk to each other and see it wasn't them. That's when things began. More people realized that because journalism was what I call patriarchal authority. They had all the power of communications one way and you couldn't come and challenge it. So that was their scaffolding. Social media changed it where they no longer were the sole gatekeepers. And because, you know, other people could talk, they had an outlet, they had alternatives and choices, and they would rather 
say it themselves than rely on the press to say it for them. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the biggest problems of the way the current mainstream media runs? Uh, The lack of self-awareness is probably, you know, the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. You know, have people tell you, okay, uh, this isn't me. This isn't accurate. Um, You know, in a world of infinity, why do you have a single narrative? Why is it there's only one correct answer, one way of seeing the world when there's so many, you can't have 8 billion people in one point of view or one solution that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. And when people ask this and then, you know, they get tarred and feathered in the press, you know, it's, it, you know, you're, you're this or you're that. And the name call, you know, I always said I always wanted an intervention for journalists because they are, they say hurtful things to people and they think that they're correct and they're not correct. I mean, we have different realities. My reality is not the same as other people's and I want to know different realities. So why are we trying to push a single narrative on all you know, different people from different walks of life. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. When we, when you say that we all have different realities, what exactly do you, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I, um, you know, I come from a middle class, uh, you know, background in Canada. I'm not going to be sa- the same, uh, you know, uh, upbringing as somebody who's been uh, brought up during war or somebody who uh, grew up in, among privilege. What you're protected from and what you have to face are two different things. And our minds leave impressions. So we are all different in that we could have next door neighbors, same street, same, a lot of things, or even the same household, different things shape us, how we see the world, how the world treats us. So we have different things going for each other and you can't expect, you know, one size fits all narrative that the press has. We need to understand different people from where they come from, what they do, and and how they got there. Mm-hmm. And from a from a corporate press perspective, what's the best way to portray that? I mean, what I'm understanding is you're saying that everyone has different, you know, different different life, different experience, different history, different personality, and so on. But if the job of the corporate press is well. I'll question what the job is, but it's if it's supposed to be uh, objective journalism and the reporting of the facts, then how can that be? How how do you suppose that be balanced with this idea of people having different realities? I think what things that you're doing or have people on Substack when we have more individuals, let's say striking it out on their own, that's how you get diversity and plurality. When you have one big corporate media, the problem is that you have people trying to rig an outcome. So you memorize, let's say, a certain set of rules. And mm-hmm. in, in journalism, we have a concept called fit. So an article will get rejected because it doesn't fit with the narrative or the style or the audience. So everything gets excluded except a you know, couple of little rules that people have to memorize. When you have uh, a lot of more independent media, people who strike it out on their own, you're going to get more information that way because your point of view is going to be different than mine. And I like reading people from, let's say, Substack or Medium because there's things that, you know, as much as I'm in tune, there's going to be things, obvious things I'm going to miss. And I want to know what they are. That's how you understand things. And instead of having an antagonistic relationship with people, you can start negotiating. And it's a completely different ballgame. I hear that. So you said that you first... One key spark of this for you was the 
war in Yugoslavia and you saw that very one way. Now, this is not something that um, I'm super knowledgeable about or which I particularly remember myself at all besides like some very, very basic stuff. But what was it that you were seeing going out at that time? And what was it that raised a red flag for you? Can you go into that in a little more detail? Well, my background is I have uh, I, I have uh, relatives who are Serbian, Croatian, and they were there and the war came out and you could just see everything was the Serbs, the Serbs. They were doing this. They were evil. They were horrible. And it was war. So you're going to expect both sides. But then I would start seeing things in the press that were almost laughable because I understood the nuances of the culture of the diff- of different people and different factions there. And I had relatives and I loved all sides. It's not like I, I was picking sides. But then when you would see, for instance, they had um, one point where they, uh, Time Magazine had a picture of all these graves implying that these were uh, people killed by Serbs, except these were crosses. So it wasn't Muslim graves. It could be either Croatian or Serbian. Serbs used Cyrillic. Croatians used the Latin alphabet, and these were Cyrillic. So these were mass graves of Serbian victims. And yet we, there was no mention. It was total different implications. So you start seeing little different things. You go, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. I would write letters, and I would be dismissed. So I started doing more and more digging, finding out more and more information, because how does this get through? Well, I got a hold of the press releases they were using. So you had you know, uh, PR companies in Washington, D.C., sending information to the to reporters because they don't know the language there. They don't know the geography. They don't know a lot of things. So here's something prepackaged for you. This side paid us to get it to you. So that's what they ran, ran with. And I said, that doesn't seem right to me. So I started looking more and more. And that's how I ended up going into journalism. Because how does this happen? How do we allow basically advertising to market a war. Mm. Well, that's something that's been going on for many, many decades, or I assume centuries. (laughs) Um, I know your most recent book is about this topic of propaganda. So first of all, when you use the word propaganda, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, basically skewed coverage meant to incite people to give up their liberties, give up their lives, and go with something uh, regardless of what their perceptions show. So if your perceptions tell you this is dangerous, I shouldn't give up my rights, I shouldn't go and, and hurt people, but you ignore it because you think you have no choice. So basically propaganda is meant to incite you to do something that you normally would not do that is violent, that is dangerous, that can totally uh, imperil your life, but you think that's the way that's going to save you. Mm-hmm. And what made you want to write this book in particular, especially well, in this time? Well, I, I wanted to write it because I spent basically almost 30 years of my life researching how this came, because it was a war that inspired me to want to go into journalism. And I realized that when you talk to people a certain way about war, you, you can't reason. So even if the facts fly in the face of this, and I, and I knew had psychology, and I knew from my uh, study, studying psychology as a student that when people hit a certain level of fear, they can't think anymore. They're sensory overload. Mm-hmm. And 
more and more when I was doing more research, because I didn't just look at it through the journalistic lens, I was looking at different experiments in psychology, where we know, for instance, that when people are, people can be told that there's going to be a curse on them, and they'll die in an hour, and they will die, even if they're perfectly healthy. This Mm -hmm. is what the brain does. So the brain is hardware. And this was not affecting your mind so much as your brain. So how does propaganda, how do these words impact your brain where you cannot think rationally? There were answers in psychology, but they weren't being applied to journalism. And it was a dangerous thing not to see how easy we can be manipulated by fear-mongering. If we think, that's our evolutionary drives. If we think we're going to die, we're brain works differently than during times where we have no stress and we think everything is fine. Mm -hmm. Can you go into the psychological aspects of that in more detail? Because I think people would be curious to know why and how propaganda is so effective. We've seen that we see this in the current era. We've seen this many, many times all throughout history. What is it in human beings that makes us so susceptible to propaganda? First, we oh in this society at least we have an overemphasis on what I call analytical literacy. So basically, one or zero. We make, can make two judgments if things are the same or different, or if one quantity is bigger than another. That's analytical thinking. And then, but we have emotional thinking. We have we can have a feel for things. Do we do we like it? Are we scared of it? And then we have primal thinking which is our survival in times of stress or progress in times of peace. Propaganda has to hit everybody equally, regardless of your background, regardless of your education, your beliefs, your religion. It has to hit in the first strike. You can't be given brain space to think. Because if you can start thinking, oh, this doesn't make sense, because some of these stories are so over-the-top ridiculous Mm -hmm. that it doesn't make sense. So I realized early on, Propaganda ensures that our our three functioning core literacies, analytical, primal, and emotional, have to be subdivided and each has to be taxed with different methods of keeping us from being able to escape this prison. So if we have an atmosphere of imminent doom, that means our primal self will not be able to think of a solution. It will look to something else. If our emotional uh, thinking is impacted by narrative, good versus evil, then we can't think of a different alternative explanation. If our analytical is clogged up with sophistry or bad logic, we're going to always find the wrong conclusion. So propaganda makes sure that we're running on this hamster wheel, that we cannot think for ourselves, that we have to rely on someone else to do our thinking for us. Mm-hmm. And how does it change depending on what authority this comes from? Because one thing I notice a lot right now is the appeal to authority, right? So people are willing to go along with or not question anything as long as it comes from a perceived authority. And people are also willing to dismiss things that are true or interesting or questions worth asking if they don't come from some type of authority. So is this a way that the media takes advantage by using their authority? They, they use authority by proxy. It's 
uh, mm -hmm. let's say from, you know, that person who has a title, has a label, that's the authority. And we cannot question that authority. And you hit the nail on the head. Appeal to authority is, uh, is sophistry. It's faulty logic. And it's one of the most important aspects to confuse people through propaganda. This authority says so. This authority is almost has like a godlike power. They know everything. They see everything. Their judgment is final. They can never be wrong. We can't question them. So they have this aura. And another way we can do things is what we call a confirmation bias. We're only given information that confirms a theory, not the ones that refute it. So you have an authority who's not challenged. We're rigging perception so that there is no... Uh, no plurality. There is no choice. There's only one option. And you have to realize in a world of infinity, how can we have a single option? There has to be multiple options. That even by accident, by default. Propaganda doesn't want you to question. You have to relinquish your free will. You have to relinquish your rights and freedoms. And you have to question yourself. You are not adequate. Somebody else has to do your thinking for you. And we have a term for that. That's cognitive outsourcing. You can't mm -hmm. have outsourced your thinking to somebody else that you, quote unquote, are supposed to trust. Mm -hmm. And how does this affect an individual versus groups? Is an individual more susceptible or is a group more susceptible? It it depends on the situation. I would say it starts with the individual. The individual feels helpless. The individual then goes to other people who feel helpless and they feed off each other. So I feel helpless. You feel helpless. We start to panic. And what do we do? Somebody comes in with an authority, says, okay, I have a solution for all of us. It's going to be painful. You're going to have to give up a lot. And then there'll be people who say, well, I don't want to give anything. Well, this person's an outsider, this person's a bad guy, this person is a traitor. We have to ignore this person or punish this person in order to keep the cohesion. So it starts like this, almost like a tumor. You have one cell and then it suddenly, that individual cell bursts on and it becomes a, a, you know, a, a tumor, it, it gets gross. So mm -hmm. we hope to stop at the individual but if it goes to the group, that's when we're in trouble in terms of propaganda. I hear that. One question I often have and I wonder is, given what we know today about the way media operates and the power of propaganda is throughout history, the history that we look at is, you know, how much stuff, how accurate is it, right? How much stuff is not just what we've been told or the things that we read, but perhaps more so the things that are left out because you can use, you can leave things out to, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of lying by omission or the sort of memory holding or deletion of certain things that happen, which I mean, we've seen a lot over the past couple of years, but I often just think, man, throughout history, I wonder how much of what we know or what we think we know, how accurate is it and how much stuff is there that we should know and that perhaps was incredibly important, but we don't know because all memory of it has been erased or intentionally diverted away from. Well, it happens. And then you're not giving people say people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. But what history do you know? Mm. You know, we we don't. You know, back, you know, even decades ago, how much did we know about PR firms? How did we know 
about ex psychological experimentation or what we call nudge units now. A lot of things we know only because of individual people telling us things. Like if you're looking at, that's why it's so important when I always talk about local information, talking to as many people who were there instead of relying just, let's say, on official sources where you interview people. I mean, I'll give you an example in the Second World War. One of the crowning glories of the Second World War were hospital trains. This was used in the press to show, you know, the strength of the Allied forces. Do we talk about hospital trains now? I, we don't even mention this. This is something very difficult. So even throughout the years, what was considered important during that era gets completely mm -hmm. forgotten. And we don't understand the significance of things. We have constantly missing puzzle pieces. And if we don't have them, we don't have the big picture. So propaganda does try to erase so much. And if somebody wins over somebody else, they will just totally rewrite history. And we and we have no idea of the, the secret players or the secret deals or the secret heroes. We'll never find out about them because it's not convenient to a uh, a you know post era narrative and we'll just bury that person and and who will be there for anybody to speak up for them that's why it's always important to document and that's something with social media that's a you know a sticking point for a lot of people who uh do like to use propaganda because they will say something but then you have a whole bunch of people telling you having footage of something that's completely opposite so you get a bigger picture and this is why we're seeing you know so much rebellion it's because we can we even with censorship even with everything else there's still ways where we can find out information that does not go with a preset narrative yeah i hear that one of the most concerning things about everything we're talking about is the way that it can be used to divide and pit people against each other again seen this many many times in history with some incredibly tragic and horrendous results but I see it still every day. I see it every day, um, perhaps not to the same level of vitriol um, as certain historic incidents, but there are always these narratives and it seems clear intentions to divide people. And I guess, number one, do you, do you see that as well? Do you think it's intentional? And if so, what do you think is the intent is it just about power is it about, is it about money is it about control why are they always trying to pit people against each other because we're talking about people who people who do that are not very competent so we divide people this is typical a classic machiavelli where he was talking to the prince you divide two group of people make them hate each other they're going to wear each other down you come in and you have no challenge you come in you can take whatever resources are left the people who fought the hardest, the first, will be too tired, too weak, and too demoralized to be any opposition. And so this mm -hmm. is how we can have people who can be very conniving, but they're not very, let's say, smart, not very able, because they have worn down people. They've worn down people. Propaganda is a misdirection. War is a misdirection. If we didn't have war, we could see what what are all the deficits in society? Who's stealing money? Uh, who's being uh, who's discriminating against people just so they can put their friends in charge instead of taking who's of quality and having new innovations, having new rules to remember? So the reason we have war, the reason we have division is so people can take your resources and not 
and you not notice it because you're so frazzled. You're so worried about your family. You're worried about your life, your future, everything you've built up that takes a lifetime. They can knock it down, not just physically, your reputation. How many people have been you know, trying to help other people? They get labeled a villain and they, they're never the same. They're totally broken. And the propagandists can just swats in, pretend that, you know, that they've done something uh, constructive. But how they've gotten it is just totally by stealing resources from uh, innocent people. Do you think that propaganda is always going to work? Is this just something that human beings are destined forever to be susceptible to, to this degree? Or are there some solutions here? Actually, it's very simple. First, when you realize that there could be propaganda, you, you start seeing it everywhere. Once you see propaganda, you can't unsee it. This is something mm-hmm. that's the weakness of propaganda. And it's smash and grab. It dazzles you. It's a misdirection right then and there. It has to work on first strike. And when you start being able to see things and you talk to other people and you trust your own judgment, if you have primal literacy and emotional literacy where you can you have confidence in your own perceptions propaganda doesn't work you start asking questions propaganda doesn't work if somebody Mm -hmm. tells you a story you go what pr firm was that it doesn't work because you start questioning so propaganda seems like we can't it sucker punches you that's you know you were if you're walking down the street and somebody punches you in the face you're not going to expect it but if you know that somebody's out to get you, you know how to avoid it entirely. You might want to smack them first. You might want to change the direction you go. You will never fall for it again. So propaganda, what, what's required is, you know, finding out how, what it looks like because it doesn't change. As I said, people who use it, they're very conniving, but they're not clever. So they might pour billions of dollars in seeing how we can be manipulated. But if you know the tricks, it's like a magician stage show. You know the tricks. It's You're not going to get impressed once you know the tricks. You go, I see the trick wire. Oh, I see the other person underneath the curtain. Oh, that that's the, the assistant scannedly clad. So I look at her and not at what the magician's doing. It's not mm-hmm. as frightening once you realize the tricks. How do we encourage people to, how do we encourage people to learn that? Um what is it that could wake people up to it? Because it always seems to be a, a minority um, who is willing to recognize this. And I guess also in particular to, to speak up about it. But oftentimes it looks like this is just running unopposed and unchecked. It sometimes seems that way. If we look just, let's say, at the mainstream media, and if we look at their ratings and circulation, they've been in decline. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, what we've seen a big rise is in independent media, independent journalism. And that's where people are going for information. So you don't need a majority of people to see it. You need a sizable minority of people who who say it. And you're not going to expect everybody to agree with you. That's organic plurality. That's the reality of the situation. It's just that more and more people... As you know, if you have, you know, have shows and you talk and other people talk in exchange, then other people do start to calm down. So if you don't take an antagonistic approach to people who believe it and you tend to be much more patient and less antagonistic, then people feel safer and lowering their defenses. If 
Because if they're taking their cues from other people and you show that you're calm and you're not afraid, then you're leaving cues as well as the propagandist who who's relies on being very unpleasant, uh, from being very narcissistic, hogging all the spotlight to themselves and nobody else. And if you start pointing out obvious things, well, okay, all these people want us to uh, harm ourselves and they're getting rich. And how well are you doing? Are you doing better financially or not? Just things like that, getting people to kind of calm down. And once people are primed, it is hard to get them uh, unprimed, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. What are your concerns with where this all goes or where it's all going? I've spoken to a lot of people who feel like the modern Western world in particular is on some type of precipice and that things are uh, things things are weird and they're concerned about the division and the polarization and so on. Where do you think this goes? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Or is it nuanced? What well, think? I'm... I think I'm I'm in the nuanced camp. I think that people, there's groups of people who are totally uh, prisoners of their own mind. They're totally afraid and they are just spinning on this hamster wheel. And those are the people who uh, I feel for because they're living in ab- abject terror. Uh, they are actually, they're harming themselves in the process. And yet you have this rising group of people who are saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to buy the mainstream narrative and I'm doing things my way. Yes, you're going to give me grief, but I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. And a lot of times people who pretend to have power will make threats and they'll say, well, we'll, we'll label you, you know, as a villain. Well, I, okay, fine. I'm a cool outsider rebel. Why do I care? I don't want to march lockstep. So what I see is a group of people probably never would have been more rebellious, uh, who would suddenly find their voice and their footing. And that's how you get change. It's one at a time. And you you have to always understand propaganda is used because there is incompetence somewhere and there's a scandal that needs to be hidden. So the propaganda is not a communications of people who are in a position of strength, but weakness. And they're trying to hide that weakness with everything they got because to expose it will show you just how weak they are. So when people can stand up to that, those are the people who are the future leaders of tomorrow. So I'm optimistic that we'll get through this. I mean, human beings are resilient. They're mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, they, uh, they can be kind hearted. They can be all sorts of things when, but usually we find this out when we're in a, in a term of a scandal or in a depression. So people, you know, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through it better. It's just that it's not everybody's going to get through it because the people who are imprisoned in fear, they think it's safer to be afraid than to just say, you know what, maybe this is just an illusion and I should push myself out of this prison. Mm-hmm. And Alexandra, you've been working on a new book. Is that right? You're writing yes. another one. Okay. Well, you, you're writing a lot of books here. <laughs> uh, so what is this next book going to be? Well, about? I have a book called Therapeutic Journalism, and it's about how to use psychology to make people braver, to present information through the lens of a clinical psychology. So why do we need fear mongering? Why do we need division? Why would we uh, put people on a pecking order, especially when that pecking order is made up? This is my 
you know, has, this is the reason I, I wanted to go into journalism because psychology and journalism go hand in hand. So why are we making people, afraid? why are we narrowing and confining and constricting people and their potential? You think of all the, you know, ideas, inventions that we've missed out on because people were made afraid or made angry. And that's, you know, that's not, you know, how we progress society, not by taking away things from people, but by giving things to people. And therapeutic journalism is a system, I said, it's not with narrative. So we don't tell people how to think or what to think about things. We don't use sophistry. We don't use atmosphere. You know, people, you know, rose to the challenge when bombs were falling and people were dying of illness. And all of a sudden they rebuilt society. I mean, we as human beings are a tough lot. We shouldn't, you know, uh, you know, sell ourselves short and infantilize ourselves when we are capable of so much more. So I wanted to develop a system of journalism where that is fostered and people don't, you know, think that they have to take things away from other people to gain things because that's just ridiculous. Mm. Out of all the books you've written, which one, what are you the most proud of and why? Well, I would have to say therapeutic journalism and Mind Under Siege are sort of my core favorites. Mind Under Siege because it took me 30 years to do the research, conduct the experiments, and look at psychology, read psychology's experiments, see which ones were good experiments, which ones weren't bad, then go out in the real world and test them for myself. Mm -hmm. Then how do I put it in journalism? Uh, Therapeutic journalism is this is how communication should be. You shouldn't be made terrorized even when the chips are down. You should say, okay, what's within me or what's with, you know, people around me that we can go and make something better. I mean, I'm not in talking in an optimistic Pollyanna way. I mean, people survive plane crashes. People survive, you know, mass shootings. People survive absolute abject poverty and war and discrimination and absolutely everything. And they rise to the challenge. So, you know, as human beings, that's what we should be looking. We should be looking upwards and forwards and we shouldn't be looking downwards at people because then that's, there's something wrong with, with you, not, not the other person. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about these experiments? You said you, when you were in journalism, you wanted to do and you conducted experiments. Can you go into that in a little more detail? Well, I took it out of the laboratory. So I would, for instance, to see what editors were looking for. So I would pitch the same story to different editors, maybe, let's say, have a cocky attitude in some or have a more uh, appeasing attitude. Which one would editors more likely take? What was it the position they wanted? I would go to different job interviews at different media outlets. Was there a potential of sexual harassment? Were they telling me what to think and how to think it? How did they look at somebody who was female? Then I would, let's say, do interviews with people. If I have a lot of questions or long-winded questions, how would they respond? If I sat silently, would I get better information? And by the way, if you sit quietly and you let people talk, you get far more better information, more accurate and realistic than if you just keep firing in questions to them. So I would learn how to ask questions that gave me good information, truthful and accurate information. I would say, how do I verify information? I would try different things and I would write room as results. How many facts did I get? How many facts did this person tell me that were accurate? And then I would go back, refine the experiment. So that's what I would do in terms of, okay, what, um, 
what do media outlets look for? I mean, it's not this, you know, vast conspiracy. Uh, it was just the mindset of people. And then they would look for other people with the same mindset and then just reinforce this very uh, limiting scaffolding in the profession that was causing them increasingly bigger problems because they couldn't shift to the change of the internet at all. They thought this was just a passing fad. Mm -hmm. What was the biggest takeaway from all of this or something that you, your perspective really shifted on? Because you said when you went into journalism, there were some things that you, that you thought or believed and then that it was very different. And then you said other ones, you went in with a certain idea and it confirmed it. Can you give an example of uh, one or two big takeaways just in terms of how this whole machine works? Well, one thing that I did, uh, I was all right about was the fact that this was a profession that was applied psychology and yet you didn't have a single journalist who had any clue about psychology, not one editor. They would, I remember, this was before I went into journalism, was watching a news report and we were in Florida at the time. And this 12 year old boy saw his uh, strange father murder his mother right in front of his eyes. And the report, this was like within an hour after this happened, stuck a microphone in this weeping 12-year-old's face and asked them what happened. I mean, this could not have been more horrific. That, I came in thinking that, I, it was confirmed. This was very, a very insensitive profession. I thought it was much more, let's say, uh, by design that you had this kind of corruption. That was just sort of a benign. This is was was taken for granted. This was a self-serving mechanism. People who came in didn't necessarily come in with a, an agenda. That's just what happened because, you know, they had all the power. And because there wasn't that feedback of social media, they weren't corrected by a public saying, no, 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 that's not correct. Could you correct the record, please? So it was by the, you know, the fault fault of the profession where it was one way. That's why journalists got reinforced with all the wrong things. So all their bad habits were reinforced completely unintentionally. That was not by design. That was just unforeseen consequence. Hmm. What are things people can do to protect themselves against propaganda? How can they inoculate themselves from this? But first of all, they have to learn to uh, not react, but reflect. So if you hear a piece of information, uh, you know, the sky isn't falling. Second of all, you should always ask who paid for the coverage. So a lot of times, you know, you're going to go, okay, what PR firm? So you can look at what the PR firms are. You can look at different reports. You can talk to people and you can have a default assumption that, you know, that there's at least two sides or more to in every story. So if you have a single narrative and everything else is wrong, that's your first red flag that you're being mm -hmm. lied to. That's if that, if nothing else, say, what does the other side have to say about it? And don't dismiss mm -hmm. it just because it's a different side. Mm -hmm. I hear that. And Alexandra, where can people find you online? What's the best place? Uh, alexandrakitty.com is my website. I, uh, okay. I, I do that. They can, uh, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. So if somebody wants to reach out, that's, that's wonderful. If you have questions about propaganda and specific studies, I am more than willing to share. Awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't touch on? 
No, I think we, close were, up? we were very thorough and you actually asked wonderful questions. It was really very thought provoking. <laughs> and if people, other people asked questions in the press, they would get a lot better answers. So to me, it's just never stop asking questions. You know, that's, I still do. I don't think you know everything. I think people come with absolutely no knowledge and then they come in thinking they can know everything or fake. You can't, you learn, you get feedback, mm -hmm. you admit your, you know, your gaps in your knowledge. I don't think that I'm foolproof either. So to this day, I'll go, okay, was I right? Was I wrong? Okay, find out. Even, you know, your ego, don't tie your ego to your opinion. Absolutely. Alexandra Kitty, thank you for coming on the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Thank you so much. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.